It's go time. Welcome, everyone, to Quick Kicks here on Third Down Gamble. Don Charbon with you. A very special guest, Ken Crippen, who is the founder and lead instructor of the Football Learning Academy. Ken, I'm very happy to have you on the program. Let's, before we get into the Football Learning Academy, let's talk a little bit about you and where you got started. I was born in Buffalo, just outside Buffalo, New York. And uh, been a lifelong Bills fan, even though I live in Philadelphia right now. That was really in my blood. And so when I started researching football history, I started with teams that played in Buffalo, specifically the current Buffalo Bills franchise, and then just started going farther and farther back through the All-America Football Conference, early NFL, pre-NFL, just learning about Western New York football. And then it just kind of expanded from there into all of football. That area of the United States is very football rich. Yeah, uh, definitely is. I mean, obviously you have the Buffalo Bills, but you go back and you've got you know earlier Buffalo teams. You had the Buffalo Bills of the All-American Football Conference. You had the Buffalo All-Americans who played in the 1920s. You had the Rochester Jeffersons, who also were an NFL team. You had the Tonawanda Cardex, who was an NFL team. So you had three NFL teams within about two hours of each other. And that doesn't include going down into Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, which is just a mere few hours away. In terms of you going through school, did you want to be a writer? I know you've published a couple of books. You've edited some others, uh, won awards too, which I congratulate you. The, The whole idea of writing, where did that come from? I think it's just something where I started doing the research. And then as I was gathering the research, I figured there's some way that I need to collate all this information so that other people can see this information that I'm putting together. So that's where the writing came out. I am not a trained writer, uh, didn't think about becoming a writer at any point. Yeah, it's just something that grew out of doing all of the research of I need a way to be able to present it to people so that they can digest it and enjoy it. And that's where the writing came in. As you went forward... Did you start with articles or did you start with books? Which way did you go first? Started with articles. Uh, did articles for several years. And then it kind of expanded out into my first book, The uh, Turmoil versus Triumph on the Syracuse Athletic Association. Uh, and then went into the second book, which is on the original Buffalo Bills of the All-America Football Conference. So even though I was writing those books, I was also writing articles at the same time. So Uh, articles have been going on for the last 30 plus years now that I've been doing this. And then, like you said, written two books, uh, managing editor of two books and contributor to two other books. So you've been busy. Uh, Some of the places that you've been published, uh, Sports Illustrated, I guess, is one. Can you name a couple others? Yeah, uh, I was interviewed for Rolling Stone Magazine, uh, interviewed for Wall Street Journal. Uh, I've been a podcast guest on uh, the History Channel. Uh, And then I've been a guest on ESPN Radio and Fox Sports Radio. So, yeah, I've been getting around, uh, doing a lot of stuff. Uh, And then, you know, just as many podcasts as I can, as many other interviews as I can. And I'm doing my own interviews for the research work that I'm doing and for my podcast. It's um, something that I guess we can really sort of touch on now. And this is the whole idea of history and how it is of import to 
our lives today. The Football Learning Academy is a lot of focus on the history of the game, where we were, where we're going. And is that a fair assessment or is there something I'm missing? No, I think you've pretty much covered it. I mean, what we want to do is be able to put today's game into historical context. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is by learning that older history. So that way you can compare what's going on now with what's been going on in the past. You're always hearing people say, well, this person changed the game, that person changed the game. Well, they really didn't. And if you understood where we were and how things evolved, you'll see that it really wasn't that big of an impact that that particular player made. Now, there are some people that are generational talents. I mean, you take someone like a Jim Brown, a Don Hudson, a Jerry Rice, all of those types of people. Yes, those are the types of people that would change a game. But some of the other ones that they're saying right now uh, really aren't changing the game at all. And by understanding that history and putting it into that context, you're able to realize when you see historic com- accomplishments, that it really is historic and not just you know hyperbole. It's a difference between excelling at your position than somebody actually redefining the position. Right. I mean, you take, for example, somebody says, well, this player had more yards than this other player, so therefore they're better. Well, I counter that with saying Vinny Testaverde and Kerry Collins had more passing yards than Joe Montana, who's the Hall of Famer. You've got to be able to put things into context, whether it's stats, whether it's accomplishments, put it into context and you'll really be able to evaluate what's going on in the game today. Looking back at the origins of the NFL, it, of course, isn't anything near what the juggernaut that it's grown into. It, as you mentioned, struggled off the start. What kind of things stand out to you as the NFL began its journey? in terms of owner direction, commissioner direction, player direction, is there anything that really sort of defines those early years? Well, the reason why they wanted to form the league in the first place is because you had a lot of players jumping from team to team. Um, You had salaries that were getting out of control and they were bringing in college players and the colleges were getting upset because These players were playing professionally, which means they no longer have their amateur status. And when they formed the league, a lot of that stuff was still going on. So they didn't immediately solve the problems for the reason why they actually created the league. I mean, you even look in um, 1921, you've got the Buffalo All-Americans. There were players that were playing down in Philadelphia for the Philadelphia Quakers, uh, the Union Club things like that. And so they would play in Philadelphia on Saturday, then they would take the train up to Buffalo and play on Sunday. They were still having those issues. They did make some corrections at that year. And that's a whole nother story about about that and Buffalo not getting the championship, but that's another podcast right there. (laughs) But yeah, they were still trying to solve those very issues of why they created the league. And they were still facing financial difficulties I mean, especially when Red Grange started the AFL in 1926, trying to compete against that, they almost went bankrupt. During World War II, there were a lot of teams that were close to going bankrupt, if not did go bankrupt. It took a long time for the NFL to build up enough stability to be able to be a viable league long term. And you'd probably see it going into the 50s of when you started seeing more of that viability. 
And then the AFL, the 1960s, you know, challenged them again. And that made it difficult. And they had to merge together in order to have both leagues survive in some way, shape, or form. Those early days were extremely difficult. A lot of teams were forming and then folding. Um, a lot of teams went under in the 1920s. Yeah, that's something that they eventually were able to fix, but it took a long time for them to be able to put that into place. One of the rival leagues that came along was the All-American Football Conference. Mm -hmm. It, right after World War II, seemed to be a real sort of upstart in terms of pushing back against the NFL. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they definitely did. Um, there were actually five rival leagues that were trying to start up at that time. The All-America Football Conference was the only one that really survived. And, you know, they were able to make an impact. You know, the NFL did everything they could to try to squash that league. They were blackballing players saying that if you sign a contract with them, you'll never be allowed to play in the NFL again. All of that kind of stuff. You know, as these players were returning from World War II, that gave them another option to be able to go somewhere else to be able to play professional football. You know, a lot of people say it was a minor league, that it was no way does it compare to the NFL. And, you know, I would disagree with that. I've watched a lot of that game film, but I've also interviewed a lot of the players that played in both leagues. Every single player that I interviewed said that the AAFC was just as strong as the NFL, if not stronger. There was only one comment that you could take as kind of a negative for it. They said, the weaker teams in the All-America Football Conference were weaker than the weaker teams in the NFL. But then he immediately said, but the stronger teams in the All-America Football Conference are stronger than the strongest teams in the NFL. So it was a wider disparity in the amount of talent in the All-America Football Conference. Everybody that played in both leagues said that, yeah, the talent is pretty much equivalent to the two. And when you saw the Cleveland Browns come into the NFL and basically wipe the field with the Philadelphia Eagles, the two-time defending champion, that pretty much tells you that you know there was some talent within that league, and they had a dispersal draft where they took all the talent from that league. Well, if it's an inferior league, why are you trying to take all the talent from it? Now, most people think of the Cleveland Browns as one of the stalwart NFL franchises. Cleveland Browns started in the All-America Football Conference. They started in 1946, Cleveland Rams, because they were in the AFL and then, then came into the NFL and then moved to Los Angeles in 46 when the Cleveland Browns came to be in 1946. A lot of names to keep track. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> a lot of teams moving to different cities and changing names. And yeah, there's a lot to remember with all that. And there's two leagues, I believe, in 45 that tried to start and never saw the light of day. The United States Football League, interesting name, mm -hmm. and the Transamerica Football League. Yeah, both of those tried and they tried... Their failure was they tried to work out an agreement with the NFL, but they ended up going back on some of their agreements, and the NFL just said, no, we're not doing this. And so that pretty much killed their chances of being able to come in and compete on the on the landscape. The All-America Football Conference didn't do that. They tried saying, okay, can we have some games together or something like that? The NFL rebuffed them, but... The All-America Football Conference never had any sort of agreement with the NFL. They never violated it, so they never had to worry about shutting down before they ever started. How difficult is it to find this information? A, it's 
80 years ago in some cases, 100 years ago in others. Mm-hmm. Where do you have to dig to come up with the stories, with the documentation, with the facts? Interviewing players is always good, but obviously the older players, it's far more difficult. Uh, when I was interviewing a lot of the people from the All-America Football Conference, either they had health issues, they had passed away, or you know, by the time that I received confirmation that, yes, they would do an interview and I go to try to set it up. They pass away in that amount of time. It, it's always difficult to try to get some of the earlier information. So you have to rely on newspaper accounts. You have to rely on any books that were written. But the issue that you also have, too, is that some of the early football history books are not 100% accurate. They're kind of going off of what their memory was of 30, 40 years ago. So some of the facts are not correct. So you always have to go back and make sure that you verify any of the information. You can try to look for official score sheets. Uh, You can try to look for game accounts. But you want to look at multiple game accounts across different newspapers in different cities, things like that. Say, for example, the Bears are playing the Packers. You want to look at not only Chicago newspapers, but also Green Bay newspapers, because you're going to see some differences between the two. You're not always going to be able to resolve that. You can try to come up with a good guess, but unless you can come up with multiple sources of information, you just kind of have to put it out there saying that we think this is what happened, but have not been able to confirm it. I mean, one of the things about Canadian football is like it's almost like you're climbing uphill backwards, mm. trying to get historical references and stuff like that. It's just really, really tough. It comes down to People like you or me or Mike Smith Knudsen in Edmonton that just take the time to actually go and dig and see what's out there. Yeah, you see that with NFL, old NFL stuff. They don't care about it. You get the Hall of Fame selectors. They don't care about the older players. So it's up to people like us to be able to tell those stories and to be able to make sure that people know what happened. I mean, you know, Canadian Football League, you look at the All-America Football Conference, which is obviously an interest for me. You had people from the All-America Football Conference going up to Canada before coming back to the NFL, or they were in Canada and then went to the All-America Football Conference. So there's a, a lot of connections, and you see some trailblazing stuff, like, you know, the first black quarterbacks. They were in Canada before they were in the NFL. That's a story that needs to be told. And not enough people are doing that. And a lot of people don't realize as well that the Canadian Football League could outbid for players back in the 50s and 60s against the NFL and the AFL. Yeah, yeah, they could. Um, You had a lot of competition between the NFL and AFL, and the CFL was just quietly behind the scenes just stealing some people away. And that's what happened with the World Football League, too, is they came in and they just quietly stole people away because they were able to come up with the money to be able to pay them and give them the opportunities to play where they may not have gotten those in the NFL. Why is it important to even know this? We talked initially about how it applies to today, but why are you and so many others so motivated to get the word out? I think a lot of it is we don't want to see this history get lost. Same with baseball. A lot of people write about the history of baseball, want to preserve the history of baseball. It's the same thing with football. We don't want the stories to fade away. We don't want the history of the players, the teams, leagues, anything like that. We don't want that to fade away. And so that's why 
a lot of us are so motivated to be able to do this of let's get this documented while we can, because the longer we go, the more difficult it's going to be, especially trying to get firsthand accounts from the people that were involved in those activities. I've talked a lot with Steve Daniel, the chief statistician with the Canadian Football League. And one of the things that he's allocated to me on several occasions is that his sort of idea of why we have to keep that history alive is because that's somebody's grandfather that was out on that field. We have to know that that person played what their stats were because they want to be able to talk about it as a family years down the road. Yeah, I would agree with that. There's a lot of family interest and you'll see it. It even like skips a generation. So say for you know the sons and daughters of somebody who played in the 1920s NFL, they may not have looked at the impacts that their father had playing in that league, but then you go down another generation and there's renewed interest. So then they start digging into the history. They start learning things. They want to start getting things published as far as letting people know what their grandfather, great-grandfather did in the early days of pro football. So, yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of interest coming from the families themselves wanting to preserve it and wanting to learn more about what their family member did within pro football. Burt Bell has been often looked at as kind of the guy that guided the NFL from post-war to its growth into the 1960s where television was starting to come on board and that he was one of the first to recognize what television would mean. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, there was, Elmer Layden was the commissioner prior to Burt Bell and he wasn't doing as an effective job as the owners would have liked when it was competing against the All-America Football Conference. And so that's when Burt Bell came in. Not only, you know, was he building the league, competing against the All-America Football Conference, working on the merger between the two leagues in order to keep the viability of all the NFL teams. But you even look before that, before he became a commissioner and he was owner at the Eagles, he's the one who came up with the system of the draft, the college draft that we have. He, he came up with that idea and pushed it through, got the owners to sign off on it. He's definitely had contributions beyond just being a commissioner, uh, being an owner as well. And he really set things up for success before Pete Rozelle comes in. He takes it to the next level and future commissioners taking it beyond that. He definitely laid a solid foundation for the league and kept it viable during those war years. Pete Rozelle, an interesting name to bring up for the generations that have been born around 2000. What do they need to know about what he did for the NFL? I would say negotiations with the unions, um, being able to come up with solid stuff that the NFL and the players themselves come to agreement with their contracts. Since then, have you know, wanted obviously more because they see more television money coming in, so they want more out of that. He was able to keep things in line uh, as far as that's concerned. He was able to take television uh, to another level, even beyond what Pete Rozelle did. And I think, you know, he kind of gets a negative reputation because of the concussion issues. A lot of that was happening under his watch, and some people were saying he didn't do enough in order to be able to take care of the safety of the players. They've really been able to to push things forward and just moving on from there. Rozelle, you've got 
the merger with the American Football League. That's a, a notable thing that you really need to understand everything that was going on, the competition, how the AFL was fighting the NFL, the ultimate resolution of the, the two leagues merging. From the NFL's vantage point, entering into negotiations to merge with a rival league, what would be going through their minds? Have they sort of conceded now we've got to make the best of it? I'm not sure if they thought to themselves that they lost. What they looked at was the fact that both leagues were hemorrhaging money, and there's no way that it's going to be sustainable over a long period of time. And so they knew just for the viability of the league itself, they had to do something, and the merger was the best way to accomplish that because U.S. buyer salaries in both leagues, it's not going to benefit anybody. Someone's going to end up going under. It could be the NFL, it could be the AFL, whoever. They really needed to do something on that. So they were thinking ahead, saying, we can't keep this up. We don't have enough money to continue doing this. We have to do something to solve this problem, and the merger is the best way to do that. The, the negotiations and the finalization of the deal for the merger came along a lot earlier than the actual merger. Right. Yeah, they um, they started it off saying that it was going to be a few years before they had the official merger. But before then, they were going to have a championship game between uh, the AFL, the NFL. They also had common drafts so that they weren't doing as much of the competition as they were doing in the past. I mean, yeah, there was still some there of trying to get some of the best players, but it wasn't as bad as it was previously. Yeah, they they kind of eased their way into it instead of just saying, okay, yeah, we've come to an agreement. Now we have to do all of this work to try to get this new uh, league together, combining the both of them uh, within a very short amount of time. And they, they thought it was best to spread it out over a period of time. Did the Jets win in Super Bowl three really move things along faster or was the mechanism already in place and yeah, the mechanism was already in place, um, but I think what it did was it, in the minds of NFL people, it showed that the AFL was not substandard, that they were able to compete against the NFL, and so it gave it a little more legitimacy when they actually did do the merger. It's a fascinating history. I'm sure we could go <laughs> for hours talking about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the NFL is over 100 years old, so there's a there's a lot to unpack, and then Obviously, you've got pro football prior to 1920 when the NFL formed. So, yeah, there's a lot you can cover. The NFL today, the the juggernaut that it is, what is its implication for football? What is its implication for society? I think you see a lot of blending of society with the NFL. Um, a lot of the things that are happening out in the world, you'll see uh, the NFL getting on board with that. You are going to have some complaints that they're not moving fast enough, but they are going in the direction uh, that society is going. It's just ingrained in people at this point because you've got so much football out there, whether it's college, whether it's NFL, there's a lot of coverage of that. And so people know a lot more about the game. And when you understand the game more, understand the players more, understand their stories, you're more apt to follow along and see how your favorite players, how your favorite teams are doing. Uh, and then you have the explosion of fantasy football, where now people are invested in individual players instead of individual teams. You have 
gambling. So now they're invested in the outcomes, whether it's players, whether it's teams. There's a lot going on right now outside of just watching a football game where people can get involved in the National Football League in some way, shape, or form and be interested uh, in some way, shape, or form. Is there any risk, any point at which the NFL hits that wall of satiation where there's just too much and people start to rebuff in a sense? I think there probably is. I don't know if we've hit that inflection point yet or not, but we're probably getting close. Uh, if they were to start you know, adding even more days of NFL football throughout the week, uh, I think you will see that saturation. So you've got Monday, you've got Thursday, you've got the one Friday game, you see Saturday games toward the end of the year, and I'll see a full day on Sunday. And so you match that with college football as well. People may hit that saturation point where it's just going to be too much, especially when you have constant coverage of everything along with it. Friday night lights, of course, is typically associated with high school. Mm -hmm. The NFL was basically charged not to move into that lane right. way back. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's been a really long time when they put that in place where they weren't going to play Fridays because they weren't going to compete against high school. They were also going to minimize what they do on Saturdays because of college football. So now you see, you know, they wait till toward the end of the season, between the end of the season and bowl season. But yeah, I mean, if they keep adding more and more to the schedule itself, it's going to be tough for people to be able to follow their local high schools follow their colleges, their alma maters, uh, or any of their favorite college teams. And so, yeah, they do have to be careful with that, that it's going to end up going backwards where they're not going to have the same amount of interest because it's just too much. It's overload that. And I think you see that with some of the spring leagues too, is that you go through an entire NFL season, you go through an entire season of college football, you go through an entire season of high school football. If you're following all that stuff, you're going to kind of be saturated by the time you get to February, March timeframe, and now you've got these spring leads starting up, it's going to be a little more difficult. People want to take a little bit of a breath before they get back into NFL and college and high school. The Football Learning Academy, let's talk about that. What is it? What does it do? What do you hope to provide for people? It's an online school uh, teaching pro football history. Not only do we want to put the game in historical context like we had discussed earlier, but also want to use it to be able to help retired players in need, be able to raise money to be able to help them. Because, you know, I see it with all the interviews that I do and all the players that I talk to. A lot of them are struggling. They're not making the millions of dollars like they, they are today. You know, there's a lot of players not making millions of dollars today. But you start looking at some of the older players and they were having other jobs because pro football wasn't enough to sustain them. Well, now they've got all these injuries that they have to deal with and they can't afford their medical bills, can't afford rent, whatever the case may be. And so since they've been so good to me over the years, I want to be able to do something to pay it back to them and be able to give back to them. And that's why I want to take a portion of the proceeds that we generate at the FLA and give that to retired players groups in order to be able to help those players who truly need it. So when you bring a retired player onto a lecture, what are you hoping? Are they going to come up with ideas for you and say, this is what I'd like to do? Or do you have a, an 
a discussion to determine what is best? It's open. Sometimes I'll you know have discussions with them ahead of time uh, as far as is there something specific that they want to talk about, especially if they have some sort of charitable organization. We want to make sure that we advertise that and raise awareness for whatever cause is important to them. But a lot of times it's, you know, me coming up with questions based off of research that I do on that particular player. Um, So it could be a combination of any of that when it comes to putting together the interviews. And then, you know, as you know, when you're interviewing somebody, the interview can go in a multitude of different directions. And so you just, you know, follow along with what they're telling you and you learn a lot more. They become more comfortable talking to you and you can really learn a lot about somebody, you know, just following things that they tell you, diving deeper into some of the uh, things that they bring up. So that's how I usually approach my interviews. Who are some of your instructors? You've got your core group, but who else can people expect to find if they sign up? Yeah, I mean, right now we've got um, Jeff Miller, uh, noted football historian in uh, Buffalo, uh, written a lot of books on Buffalo football history. Um, you've got Joe Ziemba. He's a Chicago Cardinals person, so he knows Chicago Cardinals inside and out, um, written books on them, uh, given lectures on them, so uh, he really knows his stuff. Uh, and we're working with several other people. We've got Dave Bonchi, who's a uh, high school football coach. And so he's teaching more of the X's and O's of football. So he's got a couple of classes there. And we've got a few other things in the works. Uh, Leslie Visser, noted football broadcaster, actually sports broadcaster and author. And she's done so much in her career. Uh, she actually taught a mini master class at the FLA, not only talking about her career, but also talking about interviewing techniques. How can you improve your interviewing techniques? So we were very fortunate to have her there. And then we always try to bring in other people. Uh, Shannon Easton has come in to talk about her career. She's the first female on-field official in NFL history. Uh, And we've got other trailblazers there talking about their career, talking about the struggles that they faced going through and becoming a, a true trailblazer. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff there for people. Um, depends on what your interest is. There was probably something there that uh, would excite you. Where do people find the Football Learning Academy online? Oh, you can go to our website, www.football-learning-academy.com. We're also on uh, all the major social media platforms. So links are on our website. And also from our website, you can get to our podcast. I would say go to the website, and that's your central location to find us scattered around the internet. In terms of the podcast, it's mainly going to be interviews. So, for example, the first two are archival interviews that I did with Gina Marchetti, Hall of Fame defensive end. So I'm going to try to combine the interviews of archival ones that I've done in the past, especially you know players that have passed away. You're not going to see them on any other podcast now. So I want to try to bring that out and you can hear their voice, hear their stories, um, but then combine that with new interviews. And then there's always going to be a pro football history nugget of the week where I try to relate something in pro football history to the person that I interviewed. For example, the first episode, Gino Marchetti, we were talking about his time during World War II, as well as his time uh, in the 40s and early 50s in college. 
I'm talking about the Atom Bowl, which is something that was played January 1st, 1946, over in Nagasaki, Japan. It involves some NFL players or soon-to-be NFL players. I talk about that in the uh, the Nugget of the Week. That's what you can expect in the different episodes that uh, we're putting out there. What's your favorite part of doing all of this? What really gets you going in the morning? I would say interviewing the players because you form a bond with them, which is why it's so important to me that I want to be able to raise money to help them and pay them back for what they've done for me. But forming that bond, I mean, it goes beyond just the interview itself. They've helped me get in touch with some of their other teammates in order to get background information on whatever article or book that I'm writing at the time. I've had players contact me out of the blue. I had Sam Huff just give me a call one day just because he saw something that I did and he wanted to thank me for it. I had Bob Kuchenberg call me because he was looking to get in touch with another NFL, former NFL player. So we form a connection based on those things. And to be able to have those connections is what's truly important to me because those stories, those interactions is something that I'm never going to forget. That's, again, like I said, that's why it's so important to me to be able to to give back to them. It's an honorable way to do things. Thank you. Ken Crippen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Where can people find and follow you on Twitter and other social media? I would say Twitter. You can go to at FootballLearn1. Uh, that's the Football Learning Academy Twitter. I also have a personal one, at Ken Crippen. Uh, but then you can also search us out on Instagram, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. So you'll be able to pretty much find us on any of those platforms. A lot of it, just go to the Football Learning Academy website and you'll see links on there uh, that also take you to our YouTube channel. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.